Orphaned at age 10 by a violent home invasion, Susanna Faulkner grew up wild, her stubbornness the only thing harder than her heart. Since then, she's used her skills to put a boot in the faces of those who deserve it. She knows she's wired wrong, but she's determined to wring something decent from the world before she leaves it. Never Go Home from Christopher Swan drops August 9th. everyone welcome to moments of truth the show about our favorite moments from our favorite things i'm bill coffin and today we'll be discussing one of the most beloved series of historical fiction ever to grace a bookshelf patrick o'brien's aubrey matron novels now this is an interesting topic for us because these novels despite their remarkable fandom acclaim and sales still have one foot in the if you know you know territory to know these novels is to love them, but to not know them, well, is to await a friend's eager introduction to them. The series consists of 20 novels published over a 30-year period, beginning with Master and Commander in 1969 and ending with Blue at the Mizzen in 1999. O'Brien died in 2000 with no intention to ever stop the series. The fragments of his unfinished 21st novel were published in 2004 as The Final Unfinished Voyage of Jack Aubrey. Take that, George R.R. R. Martin. The novels themselves are naval adventures set in the era of the Napoleonic Wars. The protagonists are Jack Aubrey, an officer in the Royal Navy whose cunning and acumen at sea are well offset by his boorish manners and general fecklessness on shore. And Stephen Maturin, a brilliant surgeon, scientist, and intelligence agent, but a complete landlubber and ironically, a revolutionary in service of the crown. Together, Aubrey and Matron set forth on the open sea, bedeviling the French Navy and any other enemies of the crown in the waters of Europe and beyond. But beyond the snap of sailcloth, the din of deck guns, and the clash of cutlasses, there's something much more going on with these novels. They are meticulously, even obsessively, researched, providing readers with a detailed narrative that brings to life the early 19th century British Empire with all of its imperial manners and hidebound classism. But these novels also provide an especially vivid portal into the world of the Royal Navy with its immense depth of policies, procedures, and politics, as well as its habits, rituals, and traditions. The more we get to know Aubrey and Maturin, the more we see the blossoming of one of literature's greatest bromances, on par with Sancho Panza and Don Quixote, or Watson and Holmes. These are two men who initially have very little in common, but over the course of their extensive adventures, through hardships, triumphs, and even rivalries, they develop the kind of mutual respect and admiration for one another that most men can only dream of. Their relationship is at the heart of why this series continues to sell so many copies, enjoys such ardent fan adoration, and has been famously hailed by one critic as, quote, the best historical novels ever written, end quote. This is an episode we've been waiting for, for really for quite a long time now, so let's weigh anchor. With me today is the Yellow Admiral, Chris Crenshaw. They call me that for me liver. Identifying as an elm tree pump, Tom Hespos. Oh, look, the grease from that piece of meat soaked through my shirt. <laughs> and the, ca the captain's coxswain, Joe Pace. 
There's not a moment to lose. Outstanding. Everyone, welcome. Now, before we get started, piece of general housekeeping for those in the audience. If you are like me, and you really never read these novels before this episode, you might want to stop now because we're going to get deep into the whole series and there will be spoilers aplenty here. So if you wish to save all the all that goodness for yourself, put this episode on pause, come back to it later once you've read some of the novels, but or you can just just frankly just plow through because I think the, the enjoyment is the journey rather than the destination. But anyway, just know here there be spoilers and we're going to continue. So with that in mind, Tom, now I know you and I, are the rookies in this whole thing we oh i'm kinda, such a rookie at this right, right like like we got we got into this series squeakers yeah no we are so so we could do this episode right so i've only read master Nasty, commander British and short right? <laughs> i've only read the first novel master and commander tom i think that's the same with you right yeah I, I i made it through master and commander and like i can see myself as like a person who will get through all 20 in the series Maybe if I finish them up by the time I die, you know, like I want to get through all of them, but I want to take it slow because it's, I love the reading. It's just yeah. it's dense. It's interesting. You want to take in everything because there's such great yeah. imagery in it that, you know, you want to take everything in. So I could see this taking me a long time. Plus yeah. my eyes are shot and it's getting really <laughs> Well, well, Tom, I kind of, I feel where you're coming from because Master Commander took me a while to get through, but not because it was a, the the, the prose is pretty high level. It's not an easy read necessarily. You have to do some work to get into it, but I think it's magnificent. And I loved, I loved, loved, loved this book. It's just that with a lot of books, when I fall that hard for it, I slow down and I start to like really just sort of savor each page and really kind of chew on it. And I don't want to race to the end. And that's what happened here. Like the longer I got into it, the slower it got. (laughs) And I know like part of it too, is like you have, you know, a lot of people, like I I ran into two groups of people in in this people who have never heard of this before Mm -hmm. and people who love it. And who are actually envious of like, oh my God, you're just starting out on the journey now. Like, yeah. I, I I went to the city and I, you know for for a dinner with some old friends uh, with, with uh, my old group from the the U.S. Army account, which was the first account I worked on in, in uh, advertising back in the mid '90s. One of the guys who was there was like the guy who back then was like the senior account director and like a mentor of mine. And, you know, I was just showing him like the little bag that I take into the city now because I don't even bother to take the computer. And I had, you know, master and commander in there and he spotted it and he immediately like lit up like yeah conversation with everybody else at the table talk to me about how special this was going to be for me and i like you know for for all his enthusiasm about it because i'm like yeah you know like we're, we're going to get into this and I'll, I'll let you know in the podcast episode you're pledging the frat man yeah exactly and he's i'm like but the cool thing that like, i asked him at the end to sum up like what he thought of it yeah like read it with an eye toward this is all about these two guys friendship like yeah yeah all that it yeah. is about and i'm like all right oh i'll take that and, and, and sure enough you know as i'm going through master and commander i'm like it, it really is <laughs> yeah yeah i mean really, it's kirk and spock i mean yeah it's, yeah yeah it's so good so so tom walk us through what your favorite part of master commander what's your moment of truth from master and commander set the scene for how you got there and what did it do for you to to better appreciate the novel and and kind of how did your moment of truth help this book live up to, to be honest, the fairly high expectations that Chris and Joe set for us for these things. Cause I went this one, these better be freaking awesome. Cause they changed yeah. their lives. Right. But like, Heavy it seemed like you and I had right moments. Now. It seemed like you and I had moments where we're like, yeah, no, we see what they're talking about. You know, we totally, we totally get it. So 
Walk me through your moment of truth. Uh, I mean, there were there were a few of them, and it's it's really difficult to pick one out. Um, yeah. I know we say that in a lot of these episodes, but like it was just like moment after moment. Like I think in the chat on Discord, you know, you guys saw some of this stuff that I was thinking about reading it. You know, like in, including um, you know a lot of the material from him taking the Sophie out for its first spin, which I thought was really intriguing. Yeah, so good, so good. <laughs> but, um, that is wonderful. It's a first date. Yeah, I got a couple of moments here that I thought were kind of like arresting to me and like made me really mm. think about, all right, well, you know, this is kind of like a special book here. Like the first of which was it's like right in the middle of the second chapter when you discover Stephen Matron is basically destitute. Like, you know, you have this scene. That guy's sleeping outside. So wonderful. And it stood out like someone like, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Basically, he wakes up in an abandoned ham church. in his pocket. <laughs> like, like, what is what, what is going on here? And he's talking, you know, the thing I made reference yeah. to in the intro about like, he saved a piece of meat from his dinner with Jack and stuck it in his pocket or something. And it's soaked through and he's got his only shirt there, you know, like and he's surrounded by ants and toads and he's, he's taking a leak in the bush. And you're like, what is going on with this guy? Like he's supposedly this like yeah. hyper intelligent, uh, you know, surgeon and or physician and, and, you know, scientist who, you know, is intrigued by this notion of maybe going out with this guy in the Navy so you can study some like really cool animals and stuff. But, uh, you know, along the way, I'm like, what is going on with this guy's character? And, and Tom, Chris and I are trembling right now because yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's this suppressed glee for you that um, <laughs> the onion that is Stephen Matterin's character that yeah. O'Brien peels yeah. back for you over the course of the 20 books and you you don't even see it coming yet, which is awesome. And I'm not. I, I guess we can spoil some of it for you, but like we're gonna have to spoil. Them. We have to. Right? Like, <laughs> the, the seal has to. That's okay. I'm, I'm I'm at peace with that. And and but by the way, like yes, hyper intelligent. Yes, utterly you know mindless and heedless of his personal hygiene and his personal circumstances. And like he's abstemious. He doesn't really care about how he dresses and how he looks. He's not super attached to things or the appearance of wealth. He will, over the course of the books, uh, move back and forth between having and not having when it comes to his monetary status, mm, and yet his character okay. never changes despite that. <laughs> there, not there, much, there, not much. With yeah. that curveball, you know, that was like, you know, that was like a high-hanging curveball that just kind of clocked me in the head for, from a character development standpoint. And that's what made me like really sort of buckle down and say, all right, this, this book's kind of special here because I love books that throw you that curveball right in the beginning. You know, Tom, as you, as you discovered during reading Master Commander, uh, you know, Stephen is actually a physician. And I think that O'Brien had to make him penniless to give him a reason to right. give him this shit. It's, yeah. a, it's a narrative device. No question. Yeah. And the thing about that you learn about Matron is that he, he's both Irish and Catalonian. The, the beautiful thing, and I mentioned Kirk and Spock earlier, it's true that there are hidden depths and strengths to Matron that you don't suspect because he is a landlubber. He doesn't know how ships work. And he almost obsessively, he doesn't learn. All the years he'll spend with Jack afloat 
he won't learn the difference between larboard and starboard. He like refuses to. It's almost like he doesn't a care that he makes. On all like, these does it appear to the observer though that he's not like naturally curious because he seems to be like walking guys all over the ship, being like, "Tell me what that does. Tell me what that does." But he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't digest any of it. I'll tell him I can't wait to give you a story in my part. <laughs> I just right. get the feeling like I get the feeling like there are certain <laughs> certain pieces of information you know would be helpful to you to have but you just can't be bothered to retain them like for some reason there's like the circuit in your head like you know what no the attic is full i'm not going to memorize this it, i can be somebody else can just tell me this again and again for eternity right kind of like like when does the garbage get taken out my house and, and this guy can speak right? like eight languages <laughs> right like yeah he, he, he thinks all knowledge is useful he's clearly letting the headspace be <laughs> yeah. taken up by the importance yeah, uh, uh, yeah you know, it's so funny though like his priorities are such that yeah clearly he's on the boat he can't be prioritized to figure out this basic seamanship it's just kind of funny it, it is super funny but i also think part of it is like it's let you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He is very much uh-huh. like, this is Jack's department. Uh, and yeah, I okay. never, ha- as long as I, and he says many times, I will never go to, to sea without him. Like he trusts Aubrey so completely that he's like, that is your department and you've got it squared away. It's like, if one of my kids scrapes their knee or has a cough, I'm like, go talk to your mother. Like that is her yeah. department. Like I don't, I'm not going to learn basic first aid because <laughs> we have your mother on hand. And when he and does so, go to sea without Aubrey, disaster ensues. Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Chris, I will say this, you, you, you now, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to hand it over to you to, uh, to reveal another portion. Of- well, well I, this is, I want to do that in we'll my, in my point. discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll tease that. that. That'll come was later. like the humorous sort of like arresting thing, but like there was one I wanted to talk about that seemed more serious. <laughs> Jack is, you know, described as this boorish, you know, kind of like he, he just, I think you hit it on the head pretty well, uh, Bill, you know, and it's just like on land, he's pretty much useless as far as his behavior and everything like that. But like, one thing that was really intriguing to me about his character is that he just really beats himself up over that behavior in the thing with how he meets Stephen Maturin and you think that they're going to kill one another. And then the next day he's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, I did that to you. And then, you know, uh, invites him to dinner, you know, like you could see that in action, but like, I thought it was really interesting how, how much he let, the comments back and forth between him and Dylan affect him. And even, you know, after Dylan is, is killed, you know, with the, the whole incident with the caca fuego and all that, by the way, literally fire, really fire. That was a (laughs) a real, by the way, a real boat, by the way. Yeah. Real boat is and dwells on it for so long. Like I find that so interesting about his character. And I love that about him that he's like, he, he sees the behavior in himself and he wants to change it. <laughs> Tom, I love that you're bringing this up um, because it's such a huge, a huge part of him. I, I think calling him a bore is not exactly right. He's, I agree. He has a real sense of manners and of breathing. He's a well-bred person, you know, like as they would say back then. He just doesn't know where the lines are all the time. <laughs> There's a fantastic scene where they're ashore and he goes to like a social calling and he gets, a, he just gets hammered and starts like really like just runs away with himself. And they're like, yeah. like you got to get like, him out of like, here. You, you got to get him out. He's going to do himself an injury. I think Molly, <laughs> says to, Molly Hart says to Stephen, like, please take your friend away. He will do himself. Uh, uh, you know, he'll do serious harm to himself. Yeah, that's right. Get him out of here right now. <laughs> I just like, I laughed when I read that. It was so good. Cause like you can see it happening. I won't spoil the joke, but it's the funniest thing ever. This is an admiral's yeah, wife yeah. he's been having an affair with, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. What, what honestly, but that's part th- of it. This novel involved like 
the most the most interesting cuckolding I've ever read since I think Chaucer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, think about this for like this is an example of, and I'll I'll get to this later during my portion that that Aubrey's um, unerring competence at sea is only mirrored by how inept he is ashore. Yeah. Yeah. And that, like, for instance, that he just doesn't know what's good for him. This is to your point, Tom, that he makes mistakes over and over again because he's an emotional person of appetites and he's all about the moment, which serves him well at sea. But ashore, he makes bad choices because he's hungry or horny or whatever it might be. And boy, he just he gets in his own way. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tom, is there there a particular scene that really kind of brings all this to a real head? There's a few of them, but uh, (laughs) uh, just you wait. There are. There's more than a few. Uh, You know, I like I I would rather spend the time with our two experts here who have been through, you know, the other 19 (laughs) in the series. But fair uh, enough. Fair enough. So, okay. But yeah, there there was, you know, the the scene where he's right after Dylan's death. You know, where he mentions that, like, these captains, they don't have time to really grieve for a lot of their dead men. And, you know, it's kind of, and sure enough, he ends up, like, not spending a whole lot of time on it thereafter. But, like, up until then, he's really just beating himself up over the comments that went back and forth. And then, you know, seeing how valiantly the guy died and, and, you know, taking just stock of all his seamanship and, you know, what a good officer he, he was. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was kind of it. So yeah. observant, Tom, you got that from the first book and it is something that is repeated. I, I, I've said before that Master and Commander is not my favorite of these books, but it has all of them within it. You know, everything's there, you know, Mm. like things change, their characters change somewhat, but all the ingredients are right here in this book. Okay. So, Chris, would it be fair to say that if you were to read only one book from the series, because I've heard both of you that this series is in a way just sort of like a 20 chapter single unbroken story, right? It's so episodic that really the whole thing is kind of a, a one big thing. But it seems like if you were to have just one volume, if you read Master and Commander, you could still, is it, is the whole series contained in microcosm in this first novel? No, or, or well, I mean, not story, not story wise, but no, 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 but like we talk thematically about the, it kind of is. Yeah. The flavor is like, there. Yeah. The flavors there, the general hits got it. You know, because like, like even with Steven and Jack and, and their romantic futures, like yeah. they're prefiguring their romantic futures in their careers in these right. early books, kind right. of, as, as you'll see. One of the oh. coolest things, and Tom, you hit on this is, that Royal Navy of the early 19th century is, is very diverse in the sense that there are people there by choice, people there by the impressment, people that are volunteers. There's a ton of class issues and racial issues, Irish and you know English, English upper and lower classes, all kinds of stuff. But what unified all of them was this sense of like, what are they like when the guns start firing? Mm-hmm. And, I, and there's this sense <laughs> of the word they use over and over and over again throughout the series is, is he shy? Will will he fight when the fight happens? And I might disagree with a guy like Jack didn't particularly like Dylan. They didn't have a lot in common. They 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 rubbed each other the wrong way. But Dylan wasn't shy. Right. Dylan had courage. He had physical courage. And the currency of physical courage is gold in that Royal Navy. And no matter what other differences there might be, and that's again one of the things that Jack and and Stephen share. As the, as the series goes on. Yo, I'm going to jump in because that's actually the perfect segue to my moment of truth, if you don't mind. So my moment of truth, and again, Tom, like you, this is my first time in this whole world and I was not really prepared 
for what I was going to get. And it was such a delight seeing this unfold. And, and, and frankly, as I was reading, seeing the open enthusiasm from Chris and Joe, as they witnessed us, you know, for, for the first time seeing these things, they were so happy yeah. for us. And it was really kind we of like, like field clapping all the time. It was kind of like how I felt when we did the Jaws episode of the show, I knew Joe was seeing it for the first time. I was so excited he get to experience it for the first time, you know? When and, we did the culture. And we did the same culture, thing. the culture, the same thing, right? right? So it was really fun to be on the receiving end of that. And that was, that was, and you guys are very good guides. And I appreciate you bringing us to this, by the way. And before I even get into my moment of truth, I just want to say, so I read Master Commander in this wonderful paperback copy that Joe sent to me. In an age where paperback books are generally cheap and flimsy and not well-made, this is actually a lovely book. Like Those uh, are beautiful, uh, it, beautiful it just, versions. It's just a well-bound book. The paper quality, like it's just a really good physical book. I just I just adore it. And these are hard to find, <laughs> right? So, so if you're going to read this in hard copy, these paperbacks are fantastic. But you know, I was really busy when I was reading this and I was flip-flopping back and forth between the book and then going to the audiobook. And the audiobook was quite lovely to listen to as well, just because, mm. you know, just hearing hearing the language of the time and the cadence of the, of the things, hearing somebody expertly kind of, you know, recite that, can deliver it, that had a quality unto itself. That was actually, yeah. it was a parallel experience that I really rather enjoyed. So if you catch these on audiobook, it's it's not just somebody reading the book. It's almost like they're being performed. And mm-hmm. it's a really, it's a really cool experience. And I would encourage anybody, the book is great. The audiobooks are really quite cool too. I, I would encourage you to check them out. The guy that that uh, did the second and third books, um, I, I've been listening to them recently myself. Yeah. The ones I've had access to, the first guy is different. The second, the guy that did the second and third, he's kind of lovely. He's very, uh, Patrick uh, Tull, I believe, is his name. Yes. Yeah, he, he's he like really beloved does the voices, and yeah. he's really good. And yeah. you know, so. when a, when a dude can make you see a woman. That's yeah, a right. Good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so getting back to Joe's point about you know about how Dylan's physical courage and all that, my moment of truth is it's kind of a complicated way to get there. In part because this book is is really interesting because there's not a straightforward plot to it. It's like this massively episodic chronicle of little micro vignettes kind of strung uh, together. It, which we, we, welcome it, it, aboard. Right. It's just life. It's life at sea. So like, it's hard to to go. Oh, this is when there's no linear plot. There's no Hollywood style this beat, then this scene, this beat, and this scene. It's not like that at all. It just goes. And it holds together beautifully, but it proceeds differently than like a modern disposable narrative might proceed. And so certain things happen and then a lot of territory happens and like something else happens that kind of calls you back. Something happened, you know, 80 pages ago, right? And it was really lovely to see that un- unfold. And I don't get books that do that very often. But for me, it's all around the Sophie's ongoing kind of showdown that's presaged with the Caca Fuego, which is this Spanish 32-gun Zybeck frigate. Now, Sophie's only got, I think, 14 guns. She's a little sloop. She's like the little gunship that could, small but fierce. <laughs> but, you know, and Aubrey's going around trying to bite off more than you can chew. When I saw the Caca Fuego in the book, I laughed. I was like, and I whooped because I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Because my wife is actually really, really knowledgeable about pirate history. It, it was, she was reading a book about treasure hunting, about certain ships that went down, but in it, the Cacafuego kind of figures prominently. And it was like the pirate hunter of the day. Like you did not F with the Cacafuego. It was a serious, <laughs> yeah. it was a seriously tough ship that like was not meant don't to mess be with the fire. Don't, yeah, don't mess with the fire. Leave it alone, right? And so Aubrey's like, I'm going to mess with the shit fire. I'm like, Jack, don't do it. It's like, I'm going to do it. Don't do it. I'm going to do it. Like, Jack, oh my God, man. You know? And so I'm like, worked up because i know he's gonna fight with his ship right and i and you know i'm a, I'm a big fan of like in action movies in particular i'm like 
you can judge an action movie by the quality of the first action scene. And the first action scene of this novel is they fight this this little piddly boat, but like it just it everything goes wrong. It just goes poorly, <laughs> right? And they get their Sophie gets shut up, and guys get like badly hurt. Like the Sophie gets mauled, and you're like, dude, this is like lethal combat. And you're talking about being shy, Joe. Like Aubrey's there, shrapnels flying around him. He is utterly unrat rattled, and like. He's not like, oh, this is happening to other people. He knows full well. He could just, like, a, a musket ball takes off part of his ear, right? He, he knows he's full in the line of fire, completely unflappable, right? Which is so oh, cool, right? One of the coolest things that happens is, and I don't remember what book, I mean, once you've read these yeah. 20 books three or yeah, four sure. times, like, it starts to, to move around. But yeah. there's one where he has a young midshipman who's next to him while broadsides yes. are being exchanged, and the kid ducks. And Aubrey reaches down and gets this kid by the scruff of the neck and stands up and says, stand tall on the quarterdeck, son. Like, yeah. if we get hit, we get hit. It's yeah. just, it, this is how these battles happen. It, it, it's like, you can't stop it. It's like, it's you luck. Be able to do about it anyway. Yeah. He adds, you might put your head in the way of a ball. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like ducking makes it worse. You know? but, so early on, we establish how lethal this fighting is. It's not just academic. It's for real. Like, none of these guys get into battles and escape unscathed. And I love how that gets set up early on. So every time there's a fight, there's like a lump in my throat. Like, what's going to happen? The right shot can turn a battle just like that right and so you're like i'm constantly like, oh my god so i'm thinking dude why do you have such a woody for this the shit fire man like leave it alone it's gonna mess you up finally they, they go and they fight the cacafuego right and it's this epic battle fantastic remarkably well done battle it was so thrilling and my i was on the seat the edge of my seat literally on the edge of my seat as i'm reading it books don't do that to me often but this book did and I was like, my heart was racing like how's it gonna happen what's gonna go on and of course it ends on the most tragic and triumphant of notes for the death of Dylan, who acquits himself like in the highest way possible. In the heat of battle, he falls. And like, oh no, Dylan, you know, and, and, and there's so much wound up in that. I loved it. And there's this magnificent letter that Aubrey writes to kind of explain like how Dylan fell. And it was just so well done. You, you know, just the, the amount of heart and emotion and all that goes into it. But they capture the cacafuego. The Sophie is punched well above its weight to capture this boat. All right. Like way, way, right, way right, above its weight. Right. They capture it by boarding it and they take on a group like three times your size. Now, I played enough Sid Meier's Pirates to know that <laughs> when, you, when you take on a three to one boarding action, okay, it's all about they, fencing. They pull it off. It's, it's kind of this amazing feat. And they come back in, like, check what we got. People are like, yo, they got the cacafuego. Holy cow. And this should make Aubrey's career early on. He's like, Man, I'm going to make post-captain. I'm going to get this. I'm going to be loaded. It's going to be fantastic. You know, women, fame, the whole nine yards, I'm all set up. And in a just world, he would be right. However, he spent the better part of every single shore leave cuckolding <laughs> this guy named Captain Hart's wife. Like Captain Admiral Hart. Hart. Admiral Hart. Yeah, 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 sorry, Admiral Hart. And Admiral Hart. <laughs> no, he's talking about punching above your weight. Yeah, punching above your weight. Yeah. Admiral Hart, he decides what news gets back to London and what doesn't. And he decides who gets, who gets praised and who doesn't. And so basically, Admiral Hart's like, uh, guess what? You, you want to see shit fire? I'm going to rain some down upon you. You get nothing for this. And basically, they take the prize away from the Sophie's crew. Like, the whole crew gets screwed over. Them, right? They're all, they're all going to prize money. They don't get prize money. They don't get the glory. They completely get this victory taken from them in this really swift turn of fortune that it kind of says a lot about just that's how the Royal, Royal Navy was. There was a deep sense of of politics and uh, with the officers there's a there's a social currency that was like you had to know the right people or at least not offend the wrong people what you did on the water 
didn't always translate into what you got on land. These guys really got screwed. And I felt so bad for them. And I kind of really felt the sting of, of Aubrey, who's just like howling over it. And his crew is just like singing these songs about art, about how much they can't stand them and all that. And my moment of truth is this scene that happens. French blue and, fart. Yeah, the French, yeah, a blue French fart. That's what um, it You know, uh, and there's a scene that happened that it literally, it brought a tear to my eye as I was reading it. This is the first book since Lamorte Arthur that brought a tear to my eye as I read it. And if you'll permit me, I'd like to read the passage that did it to me. Please, um, please. So, I, so, so the crew is on the deck and there's things like old heart, old fart, that red faced son of a dry French fart, right? And then it's going on, right? This thing in this like body sailor, like we can't stand this guy. And it goes, James Dillon would never have allowed it. But Mr. Dalziel had no notion of any of the illusions. And the song went on and on until the cable was all below in tears, smelling disagreeably of Mahone ooze. And the Sophie was hoisting her jibs and bracing her foretop sail yard round. She dropped down abreast of the Amelia, whom she had not seen since the action with the Cacafuego. And all at once, Mr. Dalziel observed that the frigate's rigging was full of men, all carrying their hats and facing the Sophie. Mr. Babington, he said in a low voice, in case he should be mistaken, for he had only seen this happen once before. Tell the captain with my duty that I believe Amelia is going to cheer us. Jack came blinking on deck as the first cheer roared out, a shattering wave of sound at 25 yards range. Then came the Amelia's bosun's pipe and the next cheer as precisely timed as her own broadside and the third. He and his officers stood rigidly with their hats off. And as soon as the last roar had died away over the harbor, echoing back and forth, he called out, three cheers for the Amelia. And the Sophies, though deep in the working of the sloop, responded like heroes, scarlet with pleasure and the energy needed for huzzaying proper, huge energy, for they knew what was manners. Then the Amelia, now far astern, called one cheer more, and so piped down. God damn. Dude, I I read that I could hear the swell of music. I could see it in my mind's eye. I was like, this is it was so so like I just just the vindication like a, a good vindication is such a great narrative twist. This was just so well done. And Joe, I guess there's more. Is that, am I right? Or? So I was going to say, Bill, two things that will, that will uh, lift your heart even higher. One, <laughs> from a, this is like a serious spoiler, I guess, is that uh, Babington, who you uh, introduced there in that, in that passage, later becomes a captain in his own right. Hey. Um, and, and carries on a wonderful, thundering affair with Admiral Hart's daughter. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So there is, so there is some uh, justice in the world. Yes. Um, but when you go to reverse of the metal, which I think might be book eight, nine, 10, I don't remember. Like it, it, I don't always get the sequence of these, of these yeah, just right. Yeah. But later after Jack has become a post captain and is doing some uh, things out there that really ought to launch him far up the list and get him knighted and get him, you know, a baronetcy and these other sorts of things. Um, he finds himself ashore and makes some mistakes and gets caught up in some of the, uh, the politics of the Admiralty and parliament and finds himself actually struck off the list. He's drummed out of the service. And it is an injustice. It is, it, is, it is a trumped up charge. It is a political charge that has no bearing. In addition to being struck off the Navy list, he is to be brought out and put in the pillory, which is the stocks. No. Where people then will come and throw rotten food yeah, and, and fruit props. and other stuff at you and all that. And, and, and Stephen is there with 
Jack before he's being let out and is saying like, I've seen guys lose an eye and, and you know, and I, I've like, hired a gang of brutes to so, protect you. Well, Stephen offers laudanum, offers opium to Jack to say, before you go out there, why don't I give you some of this opium so you don't remember it, you don't experience yeah. it. And Jack refuses. He says, I'm going to go out and do this thing. And he goes out there. And what's happened is word has spread throughout the Navy that this is something that's happening to one of their beloved commanders, one of their beloved captains. Yeah. And it is an absolute spit in the eye to not just Jack Aubrey, but the Royal Navy. All of these seamen, officers, brother captains have filled the square. And so these brutes are coming. They're going to throw the stuff at him. Yeah. And yeah. some guys, Awkward Davies and Barrett Bondon, and these guys are like, hey, not today, pal. Bully, bugger off, Cully. Bugger <laughs> off, right? Rum Cully. The show's not happening. And as they put Jack into the stocks, all of the, the, the Navy guys in the square hats off and they raise a cheer. And for the hour that he is in there, they stand at attention, honoring him the entire time that he's in. The, and so Chris and I have talked about this. Like, yeah. I don't want to talk about a tear to the eye. Yeah. yeah it, it, this, is, it is you bow to no one, you know? It, it, <laughs> yeah. it is very much you bow to no one, my friends. It, it, it is a blisteringly well done passage oh my god probably one of the most moving pieces of of the entire of the Hell entire of a spoiler arc. though joe well, you, okay. know, you know what though it's actually kind there of was a good. warning it, given well here's the thing because that that moment with the amelia and i kind of joked is like well i guess we're gonna have to read all 20 of these that was a point where i was like i knew i was gonna read all 20 of these right i read that i'm like that passage like that there's like 80 pages left to go in the book that's not even the end of the book there's more to go and so so i was like okay if a book is going to give me that like eight tenths of the way through then i'm in for a penny in for a pound right i'm 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 all the way here i know that's seen how it's going to play out by the time i get there i will have crossed so many leagues with these guys Mm -hmm. and that that moment will be so earned in my own head that i guarantee you it will choke me up as if i did not know what was happening more it will. Right. You know, and that's that's the magic of a wonderful series when you when you get invested that deeply. And and I'm I'm here for it. I'm looking forward How to it. How many times have we watched The Empire Strikes Back and you still get chills yeah, right. when certain beats get hit? So it's not yeah, about yeah. knowing what happened. I, I'll also say this: one of the wonderful things about O'Brien is he cares nothing about literary convention at all. Mm-mm. In the sense that he doesn't do Introduction, exposition, rising action, climax, falling action. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He's like, oh, oh, okay. Climax, falling action, climax, rising action, exposition. Like it's all jumbled up and it's just this this because that's how life is, especially in the military. And you know it's a great example of that is the character of Dylan in Master Commander. There's this like history with him and Matron. Like they both got this like revolutionary history back in Ireland. Like they kind of have dirt on each other, but that's what keeps them honest. And there's this like rising antagonism between him and Aubrey and Aubrey knows it and he wants to stop it, but he can't. And so it's, it's coming to a head and it's getting worse and worse. And he's got this like history of being a poor landed gentry, like all this stuff. I'm like, okay. I'm like, this story is going to be about what happens with Dylan. And then Dylan, Dylan dies. That's it. He dies like yeah. a hero, but he dies. And I'm like, oh, it's not that kind of book. And it's like, no, Payoffs are it's not that kind of book. Be. I don't have to resolve any of that stuff. <laughs> I can just keep going. Like, yeah. Yeah. Bullet, <laughs> Bullets have a way of resolving everything. Watch this. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, this book ends in a loss. I mean, yeah. in a, in a, a, an understandable loss, but yeah. you know, that's, yeah. that is not normal. Yeah. So. <laughs> and but, and uh, he did not. And when he wrote this book, it wasn't a series, you know, 
there was no intention for it to be a series. Hmm. Now, is that true? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He tended to be one off. They were just like, keep them coming. And <laughs> they kept paying him. And he they was like, I think this. Okay. All right. He's like, I, I love I, this. I all this research I get to do. He's like, yeah. he ate it up. All right. Never mind. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, we're now getting into the real serious part of the show. The guys who live this stuff. So Joe, walk us through your moment of truth. And I fully, I fully understand this may go well beyond Master and Commander. For those of us who aren't super familiar with the plot, try to contextualize for it for us. Yep. Yep. And uh, bring us there and tell me why it matters so much to you. Because I know this series really matters to you. It really matters to Chris. So I'm eager to learn why your moments of truth are your moments of truth. So go ahead. Yeah, Bill, it's sort of funny, like asking Chris or I to, to contain this to Master and Commander is like saying we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings, but just talk about Bilbo's birthday party. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, okay. there's, there's, there's so much. Fair. I, I, I will tell you that um, I love everything about these books. Personally, I, I grew up loving Mutiny on the Bounty, um, yeah. graduated the Hornblower books. Um, this stuff is, it's like Star Trek without the stars. O'Brien is probably the greatest expression of the maritime adventure genre that's ever been conceived. It might, it might be the greatest work sentence for sentence and book for book of adventure writing ever. And I know that that's a, a uh, large claim to make. Joe, I, I consider them the finest novels ever written in English, personally. Uh, you're not the only one to say that. Other critics have made made the same claim. These are very, very, very smart books, which is why Chris started reading them when he was four or five years old. Um, <laughs> um, I, I was I was almost thirty. You know, I find that hard to believe, but I was too. Um, I, I came to these in my twenties on the on the recommendation of a friend. I had always been like moderately intimidated by just the number of them, and I was like, I don't know how to. And he, no, no, just start and, and get going. But the the density of the language, the historic accuracy, the character development, you know, these, these books are just, they have a density, unlike anything outside maybe of Tolkien, of anything that I've ever read before. Every page, I learn something. And it's like, you're doing, okay, you know, there are a million different ships in the Royal Navy, and they all have a million different ways to set their sails, and you're going to learn about all of them. Hmm. And then they, here are all the things that they eat. Here are the way that they talk. Here's Maturin, who's who studies bugs. And it's going to tell you the Latin names of every bug he ever studied, plus the birds and all these other sorts of things. You know, what is the, the state of politics around the world in 1800? Mm-hmm. And the amount of research that O'Brien does to, we're not talking verisimilitude because it's not almost truth. Like these things are a term paper in the history of the Royal Navy and the politics of the world at the time. Yeah. One of the things I love above all else is these author's notes that O'Brien will do at the beginning where he kind of like apologizes for enormously slight differentiation from the historic record. He'll be like, yeah, this actually happened in 1808. I said it was in 1806. I'm super sorry, guys. It's, it's not exactly how it happened. And you have to like, you have to like, dude, it's okay. It's going to be like, he was expecting this whole cadre of like maritime naval nerds, like find him and like, bring us the head of (laughs) O'Brien. Exactly. He was presaging the, the, you know, the, the the Twitterverse and like, guys are going to get on my case about this. So I have a million moment of truths from these books. The one I'm going to talk about now, one of my favorites is this, this conceit of Aubrey Ashore. Okay. Uh, we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. He is a purely nautical creature, Jack Aubrey. And when he's afloat, he, he, like, he doesn't have any peers. Like, he, he's, a, he's a fighting captain. He's a seaman um, like none other. Uh, one of the coolest conceits that O'Brien enters is that when he was a, a young officer, he got caught with a girl aboard and got turned before the mast. The, the guy like, took his commission away and made him just a regular member of the crew. And so he learned how the crew 
operates and that serves yeah. him well throughout the, the remainder of his career. But on the, on the beach, whether he's between commands or even as I mentioned, he's stricken from the captain's list. This guy's another animal entirely. He, he, he does not work well with his feet on, on dirt. This guy, uh, he sleeps with the wrong women. He takes the wrong advice from the wrong people. One of the things that this entire series does is it, it emphasizes that when they're on, on board ship, Jack is God and Maturin is sort of, as we've talked about, not in his element. And that flips. Except during uh, surgery, of course. Well, of course, uh, within, his, within his specific domain. When they're ashore, Jack doesn't know what to do. He's like a bull in a china shop. Whereas Maturin, as the series will tell you later on, like he, he's just uh, a deeply, deeply competent creature. Once you get past Master and Commander and you start to look at like the women that they meet and the women that they marry and, and all these other sorts of things, Jack settles down and buys this, this cottage. The moment he has any prize money in his pocket, he spends it and, and doesn't always spend it wisely. There's a whole running gag, essentially, that some scam artist basically says like, oh, we can take all this lead out of your property and turn it into silver. You just need to give me all your money. And we'll <laughs> and, and, guaranteed you know, profit. Guaranteed. And you know, Jack Aubrey Zero is downside. Like, Jack Aubrey is the guy replying to the Nigerian prince on email. Like, right. I mean, that, that is pretty like, much who he is. Like Jack Aubrey would be all in on Bitcoin, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. No, he's bought all the Bitcoin. NFTs. Like, NFTs. <laughs> NFTs. Yeah, even better. This guy is staying up late watching, um, watching, you know, the, the TV show. What, what was it? The home shopping channel. And yeah. he's buying all the thigh masters and sure. all of that sort of stuff. There's, there's this running gag that whenever he's on board ship, he's getting these letters from his lawyers that are like, yeah, we're trying to ex- extricate you from this silver mine business. And it goes for like 10 books. Of like, he's like, he's like, I got to go out and I got to go out and capture some more Spanish ships so I can pay for the stupid stuff I do ashore. Um, and, and it's just this wonderful um, <laughs> counterpoint that you give the character of Jack Aubrey where on board ship, he's like, yeah, you just, you know, he knows how to fix everything. He knows how to do everything on a ship. And the moment yeah. he steps off that ship, uh, he just, he's, he's a victim to everybody with an agenda. Um, Either he's stepping and, uh, in a pile of dog shit or he's stepping straight into his own mouth. Yeah. He's just, <laughs> toward, toward the end of Master and Commander, there's like a line where it's like, Jack didn't bother going ashore. And I was like, good. good. <laughs> right, right, like, good for you. Like, like, by and, that and point, just, you're like, yeah, the guy just doesn't belong on land. Oh, man. <laughs> both, both, both he and Steven, like, and you guys, and part of what Chris and I talk about envying you guys is that you haven't met Sophie and Diana yet. So, no. like, just like, <laughs> good. good. Buckle up, fellas, because you're you're in for an absolutely <laughs> my two favorite women in fiction, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. After Island, these wait. two are, are are right there. But I like to think that Sophie's what happened when Island we grew up. Uh, but yeah, no, they, and they and they run into like in-laws. She's got a lot of and, Diana in her. Yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right, Chris. There's a lot of Diana in her. And, and this is like, I feel bad because this is like you haven't seen the movie. Let's tell jokes about it. Yeah, sure. You don't know. And you're you're like the guys at the party that feel left out of the conversation it's okay. do it for the folks who are listening to this who are like yes i know i'm exactly what i'm talking about like do it for them it's okay this is that's okay and, and, and so I, i'll leave it at that because as this is a marathon not a sprint this series yeah. i love when i am about to dive in back into it and i start back again at master and commander and I, it's like you know we talked about reading tolkien every five or six years or whatever it is yeah. and, and i go back to these every five years or so and uh, my wife laughs and she's like how many times have you read those and i'm like not nearly enough not enough <laughs> yeah i'm guessing for you there's like 10 million moments of truth throughout the course of the series but 
right now off the top of your head what's a moment that moved you to tears from from this oh, oh it's 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 the end of reverse of the medal what i what i explained earlier when he is stricken off the navy list uh unjustly yeah, yeah. and yeah. essentially the entire royal navy turns out to say no this is our guy yeah and it's spock's funeral at the end of star trek 2 uh, yeah. it is it is just a, an absolute I do cry at this. My, my, my wife is off screen right now saying, oh God, this Eric you cry at. Please. I do too. <laughs> That's okay. It's all right Man. to cry. It's the all right to cry. I'm with you, brother. The end of Gladiator Sorry, and the end of Reverse of the Metal. <laughs> That's so good. So that is my moment of truth because, yeah. and here's the thing. Jack has no idea it's happening. No. He's all ready he's to go focused out. on his shame. That's all he's... He's ready to go be humiliated, and he's right. stealing himself. Yeah. He's stealing the, himself for the humiliation, and it doesn't come, and instead he receives what only really matters to him, which is the respect of his peers. Right. And, and, and here's the thing. O'Brien doesn't make a meal of it. He stops the book. as it, like He doesn't give you how Jack feels about it. Yeah. He, he respects the reader enough to say, and you know what that did to him. End of the page. You know what? And it's so beautifully done. He, he does that every once in a while in Master Commander. Not, not at such pivotal moments, but like he's able to say things and kind of state a, conclu- a narrative conclusion. And that's like a cardinal sin in writing. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. But for every rule is an exception. And if you are applying your craft so deftly, you can then break any rule you want. And O'Brien breaks rules and makes magic happen when he does it. And there are times when he, when, when, he, when he basically hand waves something, but the world he's built is so rich and the characters are so well drawn. He can draw a conclusion and you're like, you're like, and basically skip to the end. And you're like, no, I'm with you. I got it. And that conclusion forms fully detailed in your mind's eye. And nobody else does that. I've never seen anybody else do it the way he does it. And it's really, it's, it's, a, it's, an amazing, it's like a rabbit out of a hat. It's kind it's of the opposite of Tolkien. Mm. Yeah, it's like those Japanese tapestries that have like bits missing, and your brain sort of fills in. Yeah, you know, so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. The first time he did it, I'm like, wait a minute, hang on, you can't you do that. There, there is so there's the so law. much of that, Bill. There's so yeah, much yeah. of that. Like his narrative style is really weird. You know, it, like in a modern novel, when you do scene breaks, you put, you know, an extra space between paragraphs, right? Sure. No, not not no, not, 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 just not, keeps not going. Patrick, no. <laughs> That's a oh. crutch. Yeah. <laughs> and he expects you to keep up with him. And I, I had trouble like, oh, wait, this is a different scene now. Yeah. Like yeah. A, half a, a half a paragraph, a paragraph and a half yeah. later. <laughs> so, 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 Joe, I'd like to come back. Since you, this is your quadrant of the show, I want to really <laughs> get as much as Pun yeah, intended. Right Ding. And I'm looking forward to this because I get to interview you guys about these books a little bit. Since you, you have felt so much more about them than I have felt. But 20 books. It's like 7,000 pages long. It's millions of words, right? It's a remarkable narrative. I know you're saying that, you know, there's the stockades is kind of your moment of truth, but I know there's a million other moments there. Without telling me what happens, can you walk me through what it feels like to get to the end of this thing? Because I know you can just flip to the start and start it again, but you've undergone a journey with these guys. You've lived and fought and loved and died with them. When you get to the end, how does it, how does it feel? I'll tell you this, Bill. It and Chris, I'll get to you too. You get to say this too, okay? But, but the way, don't you it's go the first. same <laughs> way. It's honestly, and I'll say this: it's the same way I feel when I get to the end of the Perdane novels, of Lord of the Rings, yeah, Harry Potter. There's there's a handful of properties where that I go back to, again sure. and again. 
And I always get to the end and I say, man, that was, that was a thing. And I'm not, I'm not sure I ever want to do that again, but I do. And will I ever do it again? And, 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 I, and I, I, I get to that point of like, is that the last time I get to go on that ride? I hope not. Yeah. Uh, whereas at the same time, it is an exhausting ride to go on. It is, it is exhilarating. It's a lot of I, I love it, but it, it is a marathon. Downs. Yeah. What's that, Chris? A lot of ups and downs. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pain in these novels. Yeah. There's a lot there's, of tragedy. There's a lot of tragedy. You go through a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. This is not Prydain, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, in the sense that you get to the end and there's resolution. Right. This is not fiction. This is almost like reading uh, an autobiography. Yeah. It, it's, it, like a it's, it's, it's like a documentary of fictional lives. It's not neat. It's not yeah. tidy. It's like if you're reading X-Men comics, where's the off ramp? No, no, no. You might stop at some point, but these characters keep doing their thing and, and, yeah. and are going to live on I mean? forever. So you can dive in and dive out and do whatever you yeah. want to do. But Joe, go ahead. Exactly. That, that, but that's why I love that they released 21, the yes. unfinished, because it's unfinished and, and yet it's, it's there and it's perfect in its own right. It, is, you know, it, is it, it really? It's not well. It's not a narrative. You know, it's like a chapter and a half or something. Yeah. Two chapters. And then it's just notes yeah. about. Yeah. And, and it, it, yeah. the book is presented. One side is Patrick O'Brien's manuscript. He hand wrote these novels. Yeah. So it's hand, it's manuscript Imagine. and then and then the typed text yeah. on a you know a shorter page. That that feeling of ending in media race mm-hmm. is is powerful because of that. So, so but oh, sorry, that said, yeah. The end of Blue at the Mizzen, book 20, that could have been the end. And it's a moment of such joy that, yeah. well, I won't, I won't mention it here yeah. further. It's, it's, it's just, it, it also makes me cry every single time. Of course, of course. Well, to, to both of you, my question then is this. How did it feel to read that 21st book? given that it was incomplete and given how famously reclusive O'Brien was, he didn't give a lot of interviews. He didn't talk about his craft much. He was very, by intention, he very much bubbled himself off from the rest of the world. With this unfinished 21st book, you get a rare glimpse inside the mind of how he did all this, I imagine. And you got, you got an intimacy with the author that he never gave when he was alive. How did it feel to, to read and to have that experience? Having read the entire series, you know, and then, knowing he's gone and then getting this last, this last hurrah in a way, how, how did that feel? Sad for me, like, like that there was not going to be more, of course. Yeah. Like, only Lord of the Rings rivals them to me, you know, and in, yeah. in, in the effect they've had on my life, probably. The way it stopped so abruptly gave me the feeling that it's still going on. Sure. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it, Chris. They're still out there. Yeah. Right. They're still out there doing well, their thing. And- well, yeah. Just like if Kirk, after he said, you know, first start of the right, yeah, and straight on to morning, they could have ended it there. They're still out there. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's it's very much that. It's the sense of this is something that we 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 walked into. Like, look, you guys read the first book. You get the meat cute of of Aubrey and Matter, and 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 you know, it goes on from there. And that relationship between the two of them. And one of the cool things about this series is is that it's not picaresque. It is a continuing narrative that each one builds on the one before. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just dip into book. Well, look, could you pick up big book 15 or could you pick up nutmeg of consolation and read it? Yes. Yes, you absolutely yeah, could You'd probably enjoy it. But if you, if you start at the beginning and you follow the, the narrative arc of these characters, their growth and their development 
is is just brilliantly done. Yeah, I I, I, I am in awe of of O'Brien's craft and his ability to continually show me new things about mm. these characters and deepen yeah. their their yeah. relationships and their personas, yeah. while at the same time giving me the things that I've come to expect and want from them. It that's is unusual. A good point, Joe. Like that's a that's a real balance to walk, and O'Brien yeah. does does walk it. Yeah, I, I will say this, and I don't mean to bring a negativity into the podcast because this is all about love and and bigging things up, right? But the only other books I have personally read that involve such a depth of technical acumen to inform the story were Tom Clancy novels, which are hmm. famously light on characterization. And do not yeah. emotionally involve you because you're so you're so hung up on the the tradecraft of it, the humanity of it often suffers. And I was kind of amazed, like this is like an 18th century Tom Clancy novel, except it's just on the technical side. Then there's this whole other literary side of it that I should be studying in college, right? Because the, the yeah. craft is so well wrought. And I'm like, that's not fair. You can't double up like that. Wait a minute, man. You can't double, no double dipping, dude. You can't do the technical and do the humanity in the same book. Nobody else does that. Okay. Stop it. <laughs> Melville. If you recall our guilty pleasures episode, when Chris mentioned that Tom Clancy was a guilty pleasure of his. Yeah. At the time I made the comment that Tom Clancy is basically Patrick O'Brien. If he didn't know how to read. <laughs> and I stand Vicious, by but almost fair. <laughs> fair. <laughs> Mission of the Fair should be the name of one of our autobiographies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but look, uh, so, so Joe, thank you so much because I've I've really been eager to hear you kind of straight from the well on on this because I know this this series means so much to you. This is a fire um, hose, and we could go on forever. But oh, I know this could be a, a ten hour episode. Yeah. Chris, talk me through your moment of truth because I know this series lands just as hard with you as it does with Joe. I've had the benefit of seeing things like the Lord of the Rings you know, really have their impact upon you and how deeply they affect you and how they really soak into the fabric of who you are. And and I know the series has done that as well. So I'm really curious to know what your moment of truth is. Asking that of you is particularly hard, given that you have a 20 novel, 21 novel arc to draw from. But talk me through what you chose for your moment of truth and where it comes from, what it means to you, how it informs your love for these, for these books. You know, Joe said earlier that these books are a, a you know a history of the world and appreciation of the political situation around 1800 in europe and across the world and he's entirely correct these are also novels of manners they've been characterized by a critic as jane austen for men and <laughs> it is it's completely accurate it, yeah. it, it's one of the most accurate things i've ever heard a critic say it's it, apt and perfect because it, it's the relationships between people that are the heart of these books. The sinews of it is is the naval action, you know, the 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 adventure story. But it, it's those relationships that are that are the heart of it. And and as you noted in your introduction, particularly Jack's relationship with Stephen and mm -hmm. vice versa. Throughout Master and Commander, Stephen in his diary dissects jack and dylan so accurately yeah you know he, he's like he's well surgical <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> <laughs> just that book alone i think shows you how well o'brien understood the relationships between men and not just men and men but also men and women 
at that time. Mm-hmm. Those relationships are fascinating, but they're entire or well, they're enormously different to male friendships today. A relationship as close as Jack and Stevens would I mean, you know, you would assume they were gay now, yeah, right? Right. Men just seldom have relationships like like this. But you know, there's still that that, you know, that male reserve, you know, that, mm-hmm. that is still present in us that, that we still kind of yeah. can recognize them. And Stephen, as a character, is well. Uh, Jack doesn't work without him in in a lot of ways. You're going to find out in the second book, and and here's my big spoiler: Stephen's not just a surgeon, not just a landlubber, and a bit of a goof. He's a he's a spy, and his spying. He is not a spy. He's an intelligence agent. He's an intelligence agent. He would get so angry at you for calling him a spy. Well, because because to him a spy is paid. He he is not paid. Um oh, he, and he he volunteers the services. Yes. yes because he hates Napoleon that much. Because he hates uh, Napoleon so much because Napoleon okay. betrayed the revolution, the French Revolution. And right. France, oh, and Matron's a revolutionary. Yeah, France is the nation Stephen Bang. really loves. Got best. it. All right. You know, okay. Stephen Stephen is a Catalan. He's not just he's just not just half Spanish, half Irish. He's a Catalan Spaniard, yeah, which yeah. means that you know he is opposed to Castilian dominance of the entire peninsula. Sure. And so Catalan independence is his his ultimate moving cause for most of the time of these books. Well, for a lot of them. <laughs> um, he does meet Diana, but uh-huh. in in Post Captain, the second book, that's when Stephen's second career is revealed. Jack's unaware of it, and when the, well, Jack is doing his usual stupid stuff. For sure, he's he's endangering his career. Uh, he has met and really digs this girl named Sophie, but. She is entirely virtuous and, you know, won't move, you know, without her mother's permission, while her widowed cousin, Diana, is super hot and much more available. And so <laughs> more so, willing. I can't wait to get into this. I really so, can't, honestly. <laughs> look, Post Captain is actually it's the longest of these books. It's probably my least favorite. It's also overall. probably the most important but it's it is the most important it's it it establishes so many things but it it is a painful ride because jack you know you watch jack f up and f up and f up and do everything wrong until finally when steven has come back from a mission because he's taken leave from the ship uh on an intelligence mission jack you know he's like oh i was in ireland and jack's like you're you've got a suntan you're You're full of <laughs> me you're in Ireland. He 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 calls him a liar. Oh no! He calls him a liar to his face. Yeah. And, no. and you didn't do that. And and Stephen no. says it is interesting to to see that our acquaintance with which began with a challenge should end with one. Damn! Really? Damn! No way! Yeah. yeah and they have a lover's spat. So here's the magic of these novels, okay? There are 18 more novels after this. And there's 18 point. after this. Yeah. And I'm so, still like, what happens? <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 I mean, so much of the book is, you know, they're trying to arrange a duel. Yeah. They, they, you know, they need to, they need one I of them needs to kill this. the other. 
Right. And by it's the so, way, it's so hard. Dude. By the way, Stephen is revealed to be an absolute deadly hand with pistols. Yo, he gets a, the reptilian glare in his eye and he will clinically yeah. murder your soul. There's almost no doubt that he will kill Aubrey. Yeah. But sure. they're both in such misery because of this and 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 because of the rules of this society because the of the rules of these relationships yep they can't talk it out they mm-hmm. can't it, it's it, it takes an extraordinary event and a near death for for it to resolve yeah and then yeah that friendship is i think the greatest friendship in literature even even more so than Frodo and Sam. They, they there is Chris, and what I love about so much about it is the trust that develops, and it is this absolute trust. Absolute that when Stephen is on board ship, he says there are many many times throughout the series where he says anything to do with the ship, I know that no one can do it better than Jack. And if like they'll be like in a storm and a lee shore, and other officers are like, oh no, what's gonna happen? And and Stephen will say like. Jackson charge. It's like he has this. Yeah, yeah. Almost, Stephen is often not afraid when everybody else is. When he right, should. He be. has he has a spiritual <laughs> faith in yeah. in Jack's seamanship. But then also there are times when, after Jack finds out about Stephen's intelligence activities, there'll be times when he he is on the on the brink of asking Stephen a question about like, oh, what does this mean or what is that? And he'll go like, and he'll catch himself and be like, yeah, I I, I that's not my world at all. Like Stephen, dude, that's. That's your world. And like they save each other's lives over and over and over again from their particular uh, demean of, of skill. Yes. And it's so it's so wonderful. There, there, there's there's just so much there, Joe. <laughs> no, right. You can. <laughs> um, it's been they, delightful watching you guys talk about this and, and try to not explode as you do it. Yeah, yeah that's well, real. Let Bo- me ask both this of us. Because uh, I want to know yeah, now, but like, yeah. I mean, don't give me the you know, the scene and, and don't spoil that for me, but like, is there a moment in any of these where that trust is eroded rather than built? Like, do you see that trust ever betrayed? The, the second book mm-hmm. is all about the erosion of that trust. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, you know, of that nascent trust. And there know, are like, reasons for it. There, there are reasons, not very good ones, but, but they're all, uh, I they're, think Stephen has good reason, dude. He went, well, he no, went no, to they, no, I agree, but, but, but Mulberry Lodge, Mulberry Lodge and the light the, was on, you know, the, I mean? like, look, it was, a, it's, it's a rule as you, as you read these conversations, in these books, you realize that like back then you couldn't just ask people questions. That was super rude. You, you right. can't just say, Oh, yeah. what were you doing yesterday? The, the, the you wait for them to, to, to transitive nature to everything like yes. everything is everything is transitive transitivity and and so steven can't say to jack look you can't do this because i you know because me right and and jack can't say hey how do you feel about if i do this because he can't presume that steven has yeah. feelings and 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 the the the, the difficulty of communication is is like the chief obstacle yes. in in the early books, and it goes but, on like that. One of the to some extent that O'Brien does is he the class system of England itself is a plot point, sure, and 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 gets yeah. in the way of, of of these guys, and it's really the only thing that gets in the way of their yeah. relationship. They figure it out by and large, yeah. But it, oh, yeah, you know, if, if you've seen if you've seen the movie, which is a a great adaptation, 
It really is. Um, it, it, it mixes the first and uh, tenth or eleventh books, mm -hmm. uh, but but the the big fight in that movie is a redo of the Cacafuego. In that book, they 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 make the conflict, you know, Stephen's science against Jack's duty, mm. right? And and that is always there, but it's really interesting because it it it, it can it never can become serious it never can yeah. become as serious as it does in that moment in that movie yeah. and in that 11th in the 11th book to some extent but mm -hmm. it not nearly as much as the movie right. they, they 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 try to compress that i think into that one aspect of their relationship for the mm -hmm. purposes of the film but it it, it expands beyond it in the context uh, the one place that that film to me falls and i think it gets the characters right but the one place it falls short is that it focuses like as I think it needs to is Jack is the primary and Stephen kind of is the, yeah. the pilot fish. It doesn't give Stephen the equality that he needs right, right, in right. order for the the, 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 the bipolar right. nature of the relationship yeah. to work. So, so Chris, is there a particular scene apart from the stockade scene? Of course, is there a particular thing that like if somebody were to like pop quiz the one moment that makes you love this series more than anything else, what is it? Well, I don't want to describe it because it's, 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 it's a, the finale of a book. It's the end of the surgeon's mate. Okay. Which makes me cry every time. It is so beautiful. It's so, it, it, it's so joyful. Yeah. There, there's so much joy in these books yeah. Yeah. And with all the tragedy. There's just so many moments where you're just mm -hmm. so exuberantly happy for Jack or for Steven or, or for, for England, like like I get patriotic for England. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, no, no, no. I... A book can make you patriotic for a country that you're not yeah. a citizen no, of. No, 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 kidding. Yeah. You're more gonna ruin. Joe's right. That, you will root against America. In the in the During war of 1812, you will root against, against America. America every day. I don't know. Why. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I was I was looking. I was like, oh wow, they're gonna like fight against American ships, and I'm like, how am I gonna feel about that? You know, you'll be fine. <laughs> No. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be, you'll be all good. Yeah. Those Boston time. beans won't trouble you at all. confidence. You'll be fine. <laughs> you'll be so, fine. Yeah. Joe, go ahead. There's a, a whole section where Jack is a prisoner in Boston. I'm rooting for him to beat Boston. Right. Which, like, you know, as a New Englander, it's like, what the heck is happening? Right yeah, right. Now? That's against the law. Like rooting against the Patriots. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah right. So, no, it's not right. It doesn't feel right, but it feels so right. So before we wind all this up, I have to ask Tom, I, I've got two more questions for, for the group, but one is Tom, as a fellow newcomer to all this, having been part of this whole conversation, does this make you more excited to go check out the additional novels? I'll tell you what, it makes me more excited. Yeah, you know, and and here's another thing that made me more excited. So like this was actually, and some people listening, this will take them a little bit by surprise. This is really my first experience with audiobooks, like mm. ever. I, I always consider it cheating to to you know do the audiobook. And like one of my earliest accounts I worked on was an audiobook company that got eaten by Audible, which got eaten by Amazon. But anyway, like we, we I was like, all right, I'm gonna listen to the to the audiobook on this, partially because I was going up to Joe's and I could listen to part of it there. But then also, like the other day, I'm like, I gotta finish this book. I'm like, the perfect way to do this is on the beach. <laughs> so Look at the ocean. I, I got in my Jeep and I, I drove down the beach to a point where like this way, the beach was closed to the east and there was nobody down there. 
And I went far, I went like three miles out. So this way, like the people are, are blips, like I could barely see them. And I just sat there in a chair and I listened to starting with the battle of the Caca, with the Cacafuego. And then that backfired on me in a huge, huge way. Because <laughs> I'm like, I cannot just listen to this. I have to now go back and read this because I, like, I just feel like I didn't get everything yeah, out. Of you doubled your work. So I, yeah, I inadvertently <laughs> doubled my work. Uh, uh, I'll tell you brilliant. what, though. I have never listened to Master Commander while looking upon the open ocean. Dude, that's pretty cool, man. That's great, man. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) I was listening to it, like, you know, he's talking about, you know, the sails and everything, like the wind. And I'm like, I'm experiencing this at the same time he is. Yeah. There's the waves. And it was so great. And there was nobody around, which is terrific. (laughs) Chris and Joe, I can imagine the answer, but it matters for me to ask this of you and to hear you say it 20 novels is a remarkable stretch of narrative i get the feeling that the level of excellence is fairly uniform over the course of things although oh yeah i'm getting the sense that that among the various impossibilities o'brien pulls off is a consistently high level quality throughout the whole course of the thing now how 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 true is that there's not a single bad book there, not, there's not a single book that I would say is worse than the rest. Post Captain is the toughest to read. Yeah, it's and the longest. But I, I, I don't like. I can barely pick out a favorite. There is no least favorite. Yeah, it's like your. It's, it's like your favorite organ. Right. <laughs> I'll say this: ten years ago, I ran a marathon, and the hardest part was miles 18, 19, 20 when you've like, I've been doing this for a while and there's a while yet to go and I love it. And yet at the same time, like if a plane came and like offered to take me away, I would, I would probably go. And, and for me, I've been rereading these, this series and I'm on book, I'm on book 13 right now, uh, 13 gun salute. There's a lot of political machinations that are going on and it, it bogs ever so slightly right at the point for me where I'm bogging ever so slightly. And it's the only time I ever feel tempted to say that if a plane came and offered to take me away, I might take him up on it. Yeah. One of the cool things that O'Brien does is he covers the entire globe. He'll take you everywhere. Like you've been in, in South America, you've been in, in the, the, you know, the, the South, South China Africa. sea and you've been yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And for me, sometimes when he gets into like the, the minutia of, you know, 1810, you know, uh, politics in, in, you know, the South China Sea, like, man, this guy's done his research. I might flip a page or two here, <laughs> you know, because, uh, you know, but honestly, other than Understood, that, flip. This, Philistine. This, this, this dude, he throws fastballs throughout, and in the ninth inning, he's still in the 90s. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just amazing. That's, it's just amazing. So before we wrap up a final thought, but before we get into the final thought, a prescript to the final thought, which is this, you know, this, this is a series of books that I did not get into until we decided we're talking about, well, what do we want to do for season six for episodes? And you guys were like, guys, Chris and Joe were like, Aubrey Matron, please, this matters to us. We got to get this done. And me and Tom were like, okay, you know what? Yeah, we'll read it. We'll check it out. And we trust you enough and we're going to enjoy this. And, and we did. And it's, it's been a wonderful discussion. I'm really, really grateful that you put these books on my radar for me to read them for this episode, because now I know they're on my radar for life. And it's like, I know that this is one of those things where not everything you read, you get to carry in your heart with you. 
you know, but this is one of the series that, that you do. And it's a blessing when you come across those things because they're not everywhere and you don't always find them. And it's lovely to find them. So I'm just very, very grateful you guys put these things in, before me. But, but more than that, I feel this all the time, but I think it's important to say in this episode where we're talking about stories that are such a genuine and wonderful celebration of male friendship and just the love that guys can have for each other at a time when guys struggle to find to they find they, they struggle to find ways to give themselves permission to tell the people in their life that they love them i love each and every one of you guys i love you guys and thank you so much for being part of all this thank you for putting these books in my life thank you for being in my life you guys make me better so thank you so much for all that we love, love you, you too, too bill and, hey listen if we're still doing this in like five years we should do another all rematurin episode once you guys have finished them Dude, that's a great idea. All right, hold me to that. In the, <laughs> for, in the language for season of the, twenty or whatever, yes, absolutely. <laughs> in the in the language of the vernacular, Bill, you guys are my particular friends. <laughs> there we go. There we go. All right. Well, look. So before we really wrap up, a final thought. So for a long time, Patrick O'Brien's so-called Aubreyad, which I love the name. I love that when I came across that term for like the collective of the series, the Aubreyad. I love it. It is that Homerian. Yes. It, it, it did it have an eye in it, I hope. Arborhead. It's so beautiful. <laughs> like, anyway, so for a long time, Patrick O'Brien's so-called Arborhead kind of had a, a hard time finding its audience, uh, certainly compared to where it is now. And in a sense, one can kind of see why. I mean, the very thing that makes the setting in these books so engrossing and transportive also makes them difficult to approach. The nautical lingo alone is enough to put off a lot of casual readers. To say nothing of the prose, which, you know, often feels like it was written during the Napoleonic era. Uh, and as you read O'Brien, you can see why those who knew him in real life felt he was a bit of a snob and someone with no small amount of resentment at a world he tried very hard to isolate himself from. And yet, O'Brien kept toiling at the series for book after book year after year, with the same uncompromising voice that demanded as much from the reader as he demanded from himself. There's no gangplank offered for the uncertain reader here. And for some fans, that's part of the appeal, a series that, in an age of consistently lowering expectations, the Aubrey never bends or bows for those who aren't willing to put in the work to appreciate it. So it comes as no surprise, really, that I guess it was only in the early 1990s that the books really gained traction after American editor Starling Lawrence persuaded W.W. Norton to publish the books in the U.S. It was considered a long shot at best, as historical fiction was considered to be a very, very hard sell. And at first, history indeed began to repeat itself with uh, lackluster sales on the series in the U.S. until a glowing review from author Richard Snow, who wrote, the following in a, his, his seminal New York Times book review on the series. Quote, on every page, O'Brien reminds us with subtle artistry of the most important of all historical lessons, that times change, but people don't, that the griefs and follies and victories of the men and women who were here before us are in fact the maps of our own lives, end quote. Similar reviews followed, and the dam finally broke. Within two years of that, each volume in this series was selling 1,000 copies a month every month. And the amazing thing is that by that point, O'Brien was like 14 or 15 books in. That's yeah. how deep he was in before he finally broke through. 14 or 15 books in before he finally had his big, his big break, so to speak. Any other author would have abandoned ship, but not O'Brien. They weren't just something he did. 
They were something he was. And I think about that a lot. In many ways, writing is a lonely and obsessive business that demands that the artist remain true to a vision regardless of the immense commercial pressures and strictures that govern the publishing world. Looking at today's publishing environment, it's almost impossible to imagine books like this ever being published. And yet, it's even more impossible to imagine a world without them. Publishing can be funny like that. Thank goodness O'Brien was too busy researching main sales and mizzen masks to care. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts or visit us at www.momentsoftruth.show. And before you go, please check out Joe's award-winning best-selling novel, Moss, described by Kirkus Reviews as, quote, an excellent and thoughtful exploration of art, ambition, and mortality as the illegitimate son of a literary giant deals with love, loss, and the struggle to find himself. Order Moss today through Amazon.com or your local bookseller.